Hello, beautiful people. I'm Kyra, and I will be reading the scripture for today, which is John 1, verses 1 through 5, and then 14. Ahem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. And uh, Kyra didn't make a mistake there reading that passage, which some of you were saying, well, that's the same passage as last week. And uh, it is, and it's the same passage we'll be looking at next week as well. And we're going to be looking at this passage, and we're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to look at the doctrine of the Incarnation. This morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Resurrection, uh, and, and we're going to see how all of this comes out of this, this passage. Um, but to recap, I, I've, I should start out by saying this. Uh, Julia and myself have a very honest relationship, and it shows up in different ways. So uh, sometimes uh, I do the cooking, but most of the time Julia does the cooking in our household. Um, it's definitely better that way. And I love most of what Julia makes. But now and then she will cook something which I really didn't enjoy, and I'm just real honest about it, and, I, and I'll let her know, and I'll say something like, eh, wasn't my favorite, which she now understands means, please don't make me eat that again. Um, and th this is, this kind of honesty is good, because, because, you know, when I do say I really love what she's made, she knows I really mean it, right? I'm not just saying words, okay? Um, and of course, this honesty cuts both ways, and I get all sorts of honest feedback about my sermons each, each week. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, sermons have sometimes been uh, sort of compared to uh, a good meal, right? And, and so, or a meal. And, and so you don't remember all the meals you've ever had. One or two standout ones, but most of the time, you don't, just like you don't remember the sermons, but hopefully what's been happening has been nourishing you along the, along the years as they go by. Um, so I get this honest feedback from Julia. And so last week, uh, I, I went and sat back down at the end of the sermon next to Julia. And she looked at me sideways, shrugged her shoulders, and went, "Yeah, not my favorite." Uh, which, you know what that <laughs> you know what that means now. Uh, I, I think uh, another friend, um, uh, her name begins with M and ends with Megan, said, said that 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 uh, that Stephen was like a mad scientist last Sunday, and he had all these ideas in his head, uh, which were all connected, but but only in his head. Um, so, with friends like these. Uh, so, um, what I'm going to try and do, first of all, is spend five, ten minutes just trying to, to connect those random ideas, seemingly random ideas, and see if we can't make them uh, a little clearer and, and make some sense before we jump into another doctrine this morning. So, here, here goes. Wish me luck. Um, we were looking at the doctrine of the incarnation, which is this claim that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God has come in the flesh. Jesus is God incarnate, which is a heck of a thing to say in the Roman world, where the Romans would say, no, no, you've made a mistake there. Caesar is God incarnate. God has come to us in the person of Caesar. And of course, the sophisticated Westerners in the 21st century will shrug our shoulders and say, well, what's the big deal here? So Rome says Caesar is God, and the Christians say, no, Jesus is God. 
um, but this is all metaphysical speculation. So, so what do, who cares, right? What's the big deal? But that's the problem, isn't it? Because to say Caesar is God is, is not simply to give your intellectual assent to, oh yes, I think we'll say Caesar is God, I acknowledge your divinity, now I'm just going to get on with the rest of my life, right? That's not how that works. It doesn't work that way. You say Caesar is God, what you're saying is this world belongs to Caesar and so does our humanity. And Caesar employing all the power and the sheer brute force of empire is going to shape our humanity one very distinctive way and Jesus through love and compassion is going to shape our humanity in quite another right and it works its way out into everyday life in the Roman world so so in the Roman world two-thirds of the Roman world were slaves and they had no rights whatsoever and so what what would happen is if one slave in a household revolted, the entire household of slaves, men, women, and children, could be put to death. They had no rights because Caesar is God. But in that world, there were some people who said, no, no, Jesus is God, and we will love the slave as our own brother, and so begins the story of emancipation. And, and see how it works its way out into in, life. And so in the Roman world, the plague hits and, and people flee and the dead are put out into the street to die alone because Caesar is God. But there are some people in that world who said, no, no, Jesus is God, and they stay behind a great risk to themselves and they nurse the sick to health or they comfort them and they accompany them on their way to death. And so this claim that Jesus is God or, or that Caesar is God. These are not abstract metaphysical speculations, but these have incredibly, these are concrete decisions. They're concrete decisions about what, who owns this world and what humanity, who owns humanity. And so, of course, this puts the church on a headlong collision course with the empire. And some people didn't like this story that created... Who needs that kind of grief in their life, right? Life's difficult enough. We don't need that kind of grief in our life. So some of them said, well, just change the story slightly. Okay, you don't want us to say Jesus is God. We won't say Jesus is God. You, want, you don't want us to say Jesus is God incarnate. We won't say Jesus is God incarnate. There you go. Happy now? And that's fine because what that means is you get to live. But the downside of that, of course, is we're essentially ceding this world and we're ceding our humanity to Caesar. And so it was that there were some early Christians who, and this is what I want us to appreciate, the, the, the courage, I mean, just put yourself in their shoes for a moment, the courage, the sheer grit determination, the guts that it took in that context to say we won't do that. We will not see the shape of humanity over to you. And so Caesar says to them, okay, then we will kill you. And so the church did not invent doctrine, and this was one of the key points from last week. The church did not invent doctrine, as it turns out, in order to control people, because that's the story that goes around. Church invented doctrine so they control the population. But that's not, it's been abused that way, but that's not where it emerged from. That's not how it came about. It's the other way around. Doctrine was invented to reinforce the story that was compelling and sustaining of people through this intense persecution from a totalitarian state over the battle for who owns the world and who owns our humanity. And of course, it doesn't matter which nation or which generation you belong to. There are always forces ready to twist your humanity, misshape it, squeeze it out, tear it out from you, right? 
And we don't face Caesar doing that to us, right? But, but of course, we face, what do we face? We, last week, we said that we might face uh, the multinational corporations who would just as soon reduce us to units, exchangeable units in the marketplace. And so if we are going to be able to preserve our humanity, what we need to do is grow deeper and deeper and deeper into this story that claims God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what doctrine's for, to reinforce that the doctrine of the incarnation specifically was there to reinforce that particular incredible moment of the story, the moment in the story where God drives a stake into the ground off the cosmos and said, this is mine. That's what I was trying to say last week. <laughs> so so hopefully, hopefully that was a little bit clearer. Shame Julia and Megan are not here. <laughs> Megan, Megan's, Megan's sick at home and Julia's down with the kids. Uh, but but make sure, make sure they, they, they listen to this, right? <laughs> and we'll, we'll get their, get their feedback. Um, they can go on Rotten Tomatoes and give me the, the rating. Um, okay, so uh, here's another illustration that might help in terms of trying to clarify what, what, what is doctrine and what role should doctrine play. So sometimes if you're going to read a really, really complicated book um, and you know it's just going to have this, this notoriously difficult argument to follow, but there's an argument there. You know, you know what sometimes I do when I do that, and if you haven't done this, it's helpful. You go to the co- table of contents, and what you do is you look, read through the chapter headings, and that orients you, and it gives you a sense of the, the, the direction that it's, the argument's going to go. Now, you still have to read the book, and you have to get immersed in the chapters and see the arguments in context, but as you do that, now you've got something to, some hooks to hang stuff on, right? Uh, and so that can be really helpful. Um, if it's a novel, right, not a complicated argument, but a novel, you may not want to read through all the chapter headings because it might sort of spoiler, right, it might ruin the story, but you might use it to go back and find your favorite bit, the bit that you want to reread and relive for a moment, right? Think for a moment about your favorite book. Those are the ways we use a table of contents, but think about your favorite book. It could be a work of fiction, or it could be a a non-fiction, I don't know, something that grabbed your attention and, and just you wanted to live with it for a little longer and you just dwell in that space, right? And you kept thinking about it, you kept thinking about that book and, and then, and then uh, you, you decide you, you want you keep talk, talking about it to your friends, uh, well, why don't we just start a book club so we can discuss the book? And so you start this book club and you start uh, interacting over this book. But imagine, imagine if you never read that book uh, but you just read the table of contents. And you just became obsessed with the table of contents. And, and you went over it and over it, over and over it. And then you got a group of people together. And you could recite the table of contents off by heart together. That would just be a weird thing to do, right? I mean, that would just be very, very strange. But in a sense, okay, you know where I'm going with this. That's, that's more or less what we've done with, with doctrine. Doctrine is, if you like, the table of contents for the Christian narrative of the Christian story. And in a sense, what we've done is we've produced an entire generation of people who become obsessed with the contents but they're also, at the same time, very unfamiliar with the story. And, and when I say unfamiliar, they're so unfamiliar with the story, right, that um, when they actually hear the story, they sometimes are suspicious of it. And I've had this happen. I'm literally t- presenting Orthodox Christianity to Christians, and they're suspicious. That doesn't sound right, because they're so unfamiliar with it. They know the doctrine. But, and so it's actually possible to hold, to know the table of contents, to know all the right doctrine, but to be telling the entirely the wrong story, right? And, and we're going to see how that, that happens this morning. But, but this, is, this is a real thing. Um, and so what we're trying to do each week is we're trying to 
reinsert the doctrine back into the story which, from which it came so the doctrine can supply the missing meaning because what's happened is these doctrines have become unintelligible to people coming in from outside the church uh, or looking in, but also to Christians themselves. Right? Most, for most Christians, these doctrines are unintelligible. They're like, oh, I've got to believe this, but I, I, you know, I don't really know what it means. And so we want to reinsert it back into the story so the story can supply the missing meaning. God is triune, the, the incarnation, the trinity, the resurrection. Um, and my hope is by reinserting it back into the story, what, what happens is, is that even if, look, you could be a skeptic, and, and I know we've got several here this morning. We could, you could be a Christian. We've got several of those here this morning as well. And you could be saying, I, I, I really believe this doctrine. Or you may be like, I, I'm not sure if I believe this or not. Uh, fine. Um, but, uh, but hopefully what happens is, regardless of what you believe or don't believe, we'll at least come to grasp what it means. And, and it's a really amazing thing, actually, because what's happened with so many friends who've passed through Trinity Heights We've, we've started out the conversation, they go, well, I don't believe that. Then, then we unpack the meaning of it, and very often at the end of the conversation, some months later, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I believe that, of course. And, and so, this is, so it's interesting. Just keep an open mind, see what happens. Um, okay, so today, in the time remaining, um, we, I want to look at the res- doctrine of the resurrection, which is the ultimate Christian hope. Um, and hope is something that we need in, in order to, to live. And, and it was never made more clear to me than when, when we went through the pandemic. And you, you, in that time, you're like, I'm just hoping New York's going to come back. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to meet together and be together again. So that, that was uh, during that time, especially, you, you become aware of how hope is just this, this key ingredient to face uh, each, each day. And it's interesting how Christians have talked about hope. So there's two, two distinct ways that it happens. One is a, is a way of talking about hope which finds its very distinct, unique shape around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that's one way of talking about hope. And the other way of talking about, that Christians have talked about hope, is to talk about it in terms of, um, well, the resurrection's there to sort of prop up the hope. It's there to, to support the hope, but it doesn't find its unique and distinctive shape around the resurrection. So, so there is this resurrection-shaped hope, whatever that means. We'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. Resurrection-shaped hope, and then there is this sort of hope which is tangentially related to the resurrection, um, but it's not entirely clear how. And, and so I'll, I'll be honest with you, for years and years and years and years, as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, I had that second kind of hope, which is essentially only tangentially related to the resurrection. And, and I, I suppose I thought of the resurrection as sort of like a rubber stamp. Have you ever thought of it like that? It sort of rubber stamps it and says, okay, the cross works. There is forgiveness for us. Or it's a rubber stamp that says, okay, death's not the end. You know, we get to go to heaven when we die. There really is an afterlife. And, and words like heaven and eternal life and resurrection, they all sort of get conflated into each other and they all get mixed up and they kind of mean, they all mean the same thing. Trouble is, they don't mean the same thing. Right? They, they actually don't. Heaven, resurrection, eternal life, they don't all mean exactly the same thing. Uh, they're not entirely synonymous. There are actually very few references, and this is how you can start to make, this is how I like to start making this distinction. There are very, very few references in the New Testament to us going to heaven when you die. Right? So I, I think of the verses where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, or today you will be with me in paradise, he says to the thief on the cross. 
There's also that moment where Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and this is a tremendous comfort, especially if, if, you've, if you've lost a loved one, to know that they are somewhere uh, and, and close to God, right? And, and right now, that will be a tremendous, those verses will be a tremendous comfort to people like Caleb's parents and family and friends. Um, but but the, it's interesting, the, the, the New Testament, that's about, I think I've just listed all the places, maybe there's one other, but there's very few places where the New Testament focuses on life after death and our immediate post-mortem experience. It's weird. And so actually what you can do is you can take out every single reference to our immediate post-mortem experience, our life after death, and the New Testament will hang together just fine. It's entirely coherent, entirely coherent. But you take out the word resurrection from the New Testament and the whole thing falls apart and it unravels like a cheap sweater. So resurrection it's not what happens when you die. It's not about our immediate post-mortem experience. Resurrection comes after that. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, actually, I haven't got the clip yet. Resurrection is not about life after death, but about life after life after death. Okay, just let that, it's an odd phrase, isn't it? Resurrection is not about life after death, but about life after life after death. It's uh, his way of trying to capture this distinction, right? Sit with that for a moment. Jewish people believed that everyone was going to die. And what happened immediately in our post-mortem experience, what happened when we died, it wasn't always that, it was a bit murky, a bit vague. Uh, it was never the focal point of Jewish belief. But increasingly, more and more Jewish people began to believe there was a tradition that emerged that there would be an ultimate resurrection from the dead. And it is that, event of the resurrection of the dead that the New Testament is focused on. So, in order to explore that further, I, I can't think of anyone who unpacks this more creatively or inserts this doctrine more creatively into a story than the Apostle John. John does it, it it's just the way John does this. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, I like the other Gospels as well, but just John, what he does with the resurrection is phenomenal, it's amazing. Um, and I, I can't think of anyone who unpacks the John or reads John more clearly than the New Testament theologian N.T. Wright. Um, and look, here, here's the reason why we quote N.T. Wright a lot when it comes to the resurrection. So he's writing this, this massive volumes and volumes, thousands of pages of, of, of uh, New Testament theology. And um, he, when he really produced his second book, everyone was, was sort of umming and ahhing, going, yeah, but we'll wait to see if he's orthodox. We'll wait to see if he really believes in the resurrection and whether he affirms that or not. And then he comes out with his third book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and it is the longest exposition and defense of the resurrection in the entire history of the church, okay? So this is why, you know, that's a good resource to turn to um, when talking about the resurrection. And so what I want to do is just relay uh, the, the beautiful way um, that he, he tells this, this story. Um, so John begins by saying, in the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And of course, of course, this has this resonance from somewhere else. I mean, uh, N.T. Wright jokes that it's a little bit like someone coming to you and saying, I've written a new symphony. Oh, yeah, how does it go? It goes like this. The beginning. Ready? Dun, 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 dun. And then, uh, 
So I don't think you wrote that. I think you, that's Beethoven's fifth. I, th I think you got that from somewhere else, right? I, and, and as I was talking to my friend Will the other day, and he said, that, yeah, new the, the, the New Testament, well, the biblical authors are all like rappers. They're constantly referencing each other. Or if you're Tupac, you're, you're referencing uh, Don McLean, the folk singer Don McLean, who's referencing uh, Van Gogh, uh, because Tupac's favorite uh, song was Vincent uh, by Don McLean. And so he's referencing Van Gogh and uh, Don McLean all at once. But that's how the biblical authors were. They're referencing each other in this way. And so here we are. And in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. In the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. And they echo back and forth forth to each other, right? And so what John is doing here is he's setting this whole thing up and saying, look, this, I'm about to tell you, his whole gospel narrative, I'm telling you a new creation story. I want you to think of this as a new creation story. Then let's fast forward. There's other stuff that happens. Let's fast forward to the last week of Jesus' life. And once again, John begins to count down the days of the week. And you, you know, how in the creation story, the author lists off the days of the week. There was evening and morning, the first day. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And there's, you know, he counts the days of the week in, the, in that creation story in Genesis. Well, this is what he starts to do in the final week of Jesus' life. And, and he, he just becomes obsessed with this. And he keeps reminding us in the midst of this, you know, think of the drama that's going on. There's all of, the, there's, there's all of this, this betrayal and, and, and desertion and trial and crucifixion. And he's like, oh, by the way, it's Tuesday. You know, I mean, this is just an odd sort of obsession that he comes. But he wants to tell them the day of the week. Actually, it wasn't Tuesday. He says it was preparation day. In case you don't know what that is, he says that is the day before the Sabbath. And it's on that day they came and got Jesus' dead body down from the cross and they wrapped it and they laid it in a tomb and they rolled this stone in front of it and it seems like that is the end of the story. And you know how the creation story ends, right? It ends with God resting on the Sabbath. Genesis says, on the seventh day God rested and so John is silent. Of course he's silent because it's the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested in the darkness of the tomb, and then there is silence. And it's only when the Sabbath is over that John begins his narration again. And you know how he starts up his narration again? How does he start? Early in the morning on the first day of the week. He begins by with telling us what day of the week it is again. This is how, this is how he begins. Early in the morning on the first day of the week. And in case we missed it, he says it again. By the way, remember, it was the first day of the week. The first day of the week. That's another echo of Genesis. What is happening here? What is going on? Well, here's another clue. Because in John's gospel, Mary runs in to Jesus, but through her tears, she doesn't recognize him. In her grief and her tears, she doesn't recognize him, and she mistakes him for the gardener. But that's the right mistake to make. Because we're back in the garden, and this isn't just the first day of the week. This is the first day of the new creation, so that the resurrection is not an odd event in the world the way it has always been, but the resurrection is the beginning of a new world, the way the world is going to be. And with that, John brings the resurrection to the center of history, and it becomes a center of Christian hope. Because we look at the resurrected Jesus and we see what the new creation will look like. All of the reversal of death and loss and pain and suffering and heartache and grief 
and evil and mourning and injustice. And it's this reversal and restoration and lifting up from the grave and, and what God has done for Jesus. He says, I'm going to do this for humanity. And I'm going to do this for the rest of creation. And so we'll circle back here to wrap up um, to the beginning. I hope we can see that this is a very different hope than going to heaven when you die. This is a hope for all creation and for every, and for every good and human endeavor. How we ended up making the Christian message all about our immediate post-mortem destination, where do I go to heaven when I die or not, it, that, that's a very long story, but let me give you a very, very short, truncated version of it. We invented this imaginary place called the secular. And as we built this imaginary space using a number of social theories, the sacred was squeezed out and it was pushed out and it was squeezed out and the secular grew and expanded and the sacred retreated and ex retreated and eventually the sacred was pushed out into this other world, out of this world, into another. And spirituality is individualized and privatized and utterly transcendentalized until there's nothing sacred left. You look around and people go, oh, there's nothing sacred anymore. Well, from that point of view, it's kind of true. But imagine if there is something sacred about the people that you love the most. And what if there is something sacred about the friendships and the family that you cherish? There's something sacred about that parent and child relationship that Caleb's parents have enjoyed and now mourn the loss of. There's something sacred and good about that. And what if the work you are most proud of was sacred? What if the creativity you've invested so much of yourself in was sacred? I, I was talking to a friend uh, from Trinity Heights who's, who's published 10 books or 11 books in, so far. And he's like, That's, and then imagine the creative energy that's gone into that, right? What if there was something sacred about that? Imagine the good things in this world that you have cherished and you have reveled in. What if it's all sacred? Resurrection is a refusal of the secular. Resurrection, placed at the center of history, says all of this goodness is sacred. And resurrection says this is sacred not just to you, but this is sacred to God. So sacred that all this love and goodness and the people we have loved most deeply will one day be resurrected and restored to each other and in their proper place.